Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and welcome back to the Apiongo Line. Our show today centers on four classic works, all written by one of the great short story writers of English literature, Catherine Mansfield, and all performed by our very own Apiongo Readers Theatre. Next up is A Cup of Tea, read by Carol Peterson. Rosemary Fell was not exactly beautiful. No, you couldn't have called her beautiful. Pretty, well, if you took her to pieces, but... Why be so cruel as to take anyone to pieces? She was young, brilliant, extremely modern, exquisitely well-dressed, amazingly well-read in the newest of the new books. And her parties were the most delicious mixture of the really important people and artists, quaint creatures, discoveries of hers, some of them too terrifying for words, but others quite presentable and amusing. Rosemary had been married two years. She had a duck of a boy. No, not Peter. Michael. And her husband absolutely adored her. They were rich. Really rich. Not just comfortably well off, which is odious and stuffy and sounds like one's grandparents. But if Rosemary wanted to shop, she would go to Paris. As you and I would go to Grumbling Grannies or Gifted Grey. If she wanted to buy flowers, the car pulled up at that perfect shop in Regent Street, and Rosemary inside the shop just gazed in her dazzled, rather exotic way and said, I want those, and those, and those. Give me four bunches of those, and that jar of roses. Yes, I'll have all the roses in the jar. No, no lilac. I hate lilac. It's got no shape. The attendant bowed and put the lilac out of sight as though this was only too true. Lilac was dreadfully shapeless. Give me those stumpy little tulips, those red and white ones. And she was followed to the car by a thin shop girl staggering under an immense white paper armful that looked like a baby in long clothes. One winter afternoon, she had been buying something in a little antique shop in Curzon Street. It was a a shop she liked. For one thing, one usually had it to oneself. And then the man who kept it was ridiculously fond of serving her. He beamed whenever she came in. He clasped his hands. He was so gratified he could scarcely speak. Flattery, of course. All the same, there was something. You see, madam... He would explain in his low, respectful tones, I love my things. I would rather not part with them than sell them to someone who does not appreciate them, who has not that fine feeling which is so rare. And breathing deeply, he unrolled a tiny square of blue velvet and pressed it on the glass counter with his pale fingertips. Today, it was a little box. He had been keeping it for her. He had shown it to nobody as yet. An exquisite little enamel box with a glaze so fine, it looked as though it had been baked in cream. On the lid, a minute creature stood under a flowery tree, and a more minute creature still had her arms around his neck. Her hat, really no bigger than a geranium petal, hung from a branch. It had green ribbons, and there was a pink cloud like a watchful cherub floating above their heads. Rosemary took her hands out of her long gloves. She always took off her gloves to examine such things. Yes, she liked it very much. She loved it. It was a great duck. She must have it. And, turning the creamy box, opening and shutting it, 
she couldn't help noticing how charming her hands were against the blue velvet. The shopman, in some dim cavern of his mind, may have dared to think so too, for he took a pencil, leant over the counter, and his pale, bloodless fingers crept timidly towards those rosy, flashing ones, as he murmured gently, If I may venture to point out to Madame the flowers on the little lady's bodice. Charming! Rosemary admired the flowers. But what was the price? For a moment the shopman did not seem to hear. Then a murmur reached her. Twenty-eight guineas, madam. Twenty-eight guineas. Rosemary gave no sign. She laid the little box down. She buttoned her gloves again. Twenty-eight guineas. Even if one is rich. She looked vague. She stared at a plump tea kettle, like a plump hen, above the shopman's head. And her voice was dreamy as she answered, Well, keep it for me, will you? But the shopman had already bowed, as though keeping it for her was all any human being could ask. He would be willing, of course, to keep it for her forever. The discreet door shut with a click. She was outside on the step, gazing at the winter afternoon. Rain was falling, and with the rain it seemed the dark came too, spinning down like ashes. There was a cold, bitter taste in the air, and the new lighted lamps looked sad. Sad were the lights in the houses opposite. Dimly they burned, as if regretting something. And people hurried by, hidden by their hateful umbrellas. Rosemary felt a strange pang. She pressed her muff against her breast. She wished she had the little box, too, to cling to. Of course, the car was there. She'd only to cross the pavement, but still, she waited. There are moments, horrible moments in life, when one emerges from shelter and looks out, and it's awful. One oughtn't to give way to them. One ought to go home and have an extra special tea. But at the very instant of thinking that, a young girl, thin, dark, shadowy, where had she come from, was standing at Rosemary's elbow, and a voice like a sigh, almost like a sob, breathed, Madam, may I speak to you a moment? Speak to me? Rosemary turned. She saw a little battered creature with enormous eyes. Someone quite young, no older than herself, who clutched at her coat collar with reddened hands and shivered as though she had just come out of the water. Madam, stammered the voice, would you let me have the price of a cup of tea? A cup of tea? There was something simple, sincere in that voice. It wasn't in the least the voice of a beggar. Then have you no money at all? asked Rosemary. None, madam, came the answer. How extraordinary! Rosemary peered through the dusk, and the girl gazed back at her. How more than extraordinary! And suddenly it seemed to Rosemary, such an adventure! It was like something out of a novel by Dostoevsky, this meeting in the dusk. Supposing she took the girl home. Supposing... She did do one of those things she was always reading about or seeing on the stage. What would happen? It would be thrilling. And she heard herself saying afterwards to the amazement of her friends, I simply took her home with me, as she stepped forward and said to that dim person beside her, Come home to tea with me. The girl drew back startled. She even stopped shivering for a moment. Rosemary put a hand and touched her arm. I mean it, she said smiling, and she felt how simple and kind her smile was. Why won't you? Come home with me now in my car and have tea. You, 
You don't mean it, madam, said the girl, and there was pain in her voice. But I do, cried Rosemary. I want you to, to please me. Come along. The girl put her fingers to her lips, and her eyes devoured Rosemary. You're, you're not taking me to the police station, she stammered. <laughs> the police station? Rosemary laughed out. Why should I be so cruel? No, I only want to make you warm and to hear anything you care to tell me. Hungry people are easily led. The footman held the door of the car open, and a moment later they were skimming through the dusk. There, said Rosemary. She had a feeling of triumph as she slipped her hand through the velvet strap. She could have said, now I've got you, as she gazed at the little captive she had netted. But of course she meant it kindly. Oh, more than kindly. She was going to prove to this girl that wonderful things did happen in life, that fairy godmothers were real, that rich people had hearts, and that women were sisters. She turned impulsively, saying, Don't be frightened. After all, why shouldn't you come back with me? We're both women. If I'm the more fortunate, you ought to expect. But happily at that moment, for she didn't know how the sentence was going to end, the car stopped, the bell was rung, the door opened, and with a charming, protecting, almost embracing movement, Rosemary drew the other into the hall. Warmth, softness, light, a sweet scent. All those things, so familiar to her, she never even thought about them. She watched that other receive. It was fascinating. She was like the rich little girl in her nursery, with all the cupboards to open, all the boxes to unpack. Come, come upstairs, said Rosemary, longing to begin to be generous. Come up to my room. And besides, she wanted to spare this poor little thing from being stared at by the servants. She decided as they mounted the stairs she would not even ring for Jean, but take off her things by herself. The great thing was to be natural. And there, cried Rosemary again, as they reached her beautiful big bedroom with the curtains drawn, the fire leaping on her wonderful lacquer furniture, her gold cushions, and the primrose and blue rugs. The girl stood just inside the door. She seemed dazed, but Rosemary didn't mind that. Come and sit down, she cried, dragging her big chair up to the fire. In this comfy chair, come and get warm. You look so dreadfully cold. I daren't, madam, said the girl, and she edged backwards. Oh, please, Rosemary ran forward. You mustn't be frightened. You mustn't, really. Sit down, and when I've taken off my things, we shall go into the next room and have tea and be cozy. Why are you afraid? And gently she half pushed the thin figure into its deep cradle, but there was no answer. The girl stayed just as she had been put, with her hands by her sides and her mouth slightly open. To be quite sincere, she looked rather stupid. But Rosemary wouldn't acknowledge it. She leaned over her, saying, Won't you take off your hat? Your pretty hair is all wet. And one is so much more comfortable without a hat, isn't one? There was a whisper that sounded like, Very good, madam. And the crushed hat was taken off. And let me help you off with your coat, too, said Rosemary. The girl stood up, but she held on to the chair with one hand and let Rosemary pull. It was quite an effort. The other scarcely helped her at all. She seemed to stagger like a child, and the thought came and went through Rosemary's mind that if people wanted helping, they must respond a little, just a little. Otherwise, it became very difficult indeed. And what was she to do with the coat now? 
She left it on the floor and the hut, too. She was just going to take a cigarette off the mantelpiece when the girl said quickly, but so lightly and strangely, I'm very sorry, madam, but I'm going to faint. I shall go off, madam, if I don't have something. Oh, good heavens, how thoughtless I am! Rosemary rushed to the bell. Tea! Tea at once! And some brandy immediately! The maid was gone, but the girl almost cried out, No, no, I don't want no brandy. I never drink brandy. It's a cup of tea I want, madam. And she burst into tears. It was a terrible and fascinating moment. Rosemary knelt beside her chair. Don't cry, poor little thing, she said. Don't cry. And she gave the other her lace handkerchief. She really was touched beyond words. She put her arm around those thin, bird-like shoulders. Now, at last, the other forgot to be shy, forgot everything, except that they were both women, and gasped out, I can't go on no longer like this. I can't bear it. I can't bear it. I shall do away with myself. I can't bear no more. You shan't have to. I'll look after you. Don't cry any more. Don't you see what a good thing it was that you met me? We'll have tea, and you'll tell me everything. And I shall arrange something. I promise. Do stop crying. It's so exhausting. Please. The other did stop just in time for Rosemary to get up before the tea came. She had the table placed between them. She plied the poor little creature with everything, all the sandwiches, all the bread and butter, and every time her cup was empty, she filled it with tea, cream, and sugar. People always said sugar was so nourishing. As for herself, she didn't eat. She smoked and looked away tactfully so that the other should not be shy. And really, the effect of that slight meal was marvelous. When the tea table was carried away, a new being, a light, frail creature with tangled hair, dark lips, deep, lighted eyes, lay back in the big chair in a kind of sweet languor. Looking at the blaze, Rosemary lit a fresh cigarette. It was time to begin. And when did you have your last meal? She asked softly. But at that moment, the door handle turned. Rosemary, may I come in? It was Philip. Of course. He came in. Oh, I'm so sorry, he said, and stopped and stared. It's quite all right, said Rosemary, smiling. This is my friend, Miss Smith. Madam, said the languid figure, who was strangely still and unafraid. Smith, said Rosemary, we are going to have a little talk. Oh, yes, said Philip, quite, and his eye caught the sight of the coat and hat on the floor. He came over to the fire and turned his back to it. It's a beastly afternoon, he said curiously, still looking at that listless figure, looking at its hands and boots, and then at Rosemary again. Yes, isn't it, said Rosemary, enthusiastically. Vile. Philip smiled his charming smile. As a matter of fact, said he, I wanted you to come into the library for a moment, would you? Will Miss Smith excuse us? The big eyes were raised to him, but Rosemary answered for her. Of course she will and they went out of the room together. I say, said Philip, when they were alone, explain, who is she? What does it all mean? Rosemary, laughing, leaned against the door and said, I picked her up on Curzon Street. Really, she's a real pickup. She asked me for the price of a cup of tea, and I brought her home with me. But what on earth are you going to do with her, cried Philip. Be nice to her, said Rosemary quickly. Be frightfully nice to her look after her. I don't know how, 
We haven't talked yet, but show her, treat her, make her feel... My darling girl, said Philip, you're quite mad, you know. It simply can't be done. I knew you'd say that, retorted Rosemary. Why not? I want to. Isn't that a reason? And besides, one's always reading about these things. I decided, but, said Philip, and he cut the end of a cigar. She's so astonishingly pretty. Pretty? Rosemary was so surprised that she blushed. Do you think so? I, I hadn't thought about it. Good Lord, Philip struck a match. She's absolutely lovely. Look again, my child. I was bowled over when I came into your room just now. However, I think you're making a ghastly mistake. Sorry, darling, if I'm crude and all that, but let me know if Miss Smith is going to dine with us in time for me to look up the Milliner's Gazette. You absurd creature, said Rosemary, and she went out of the library, but not back to her bedroom. She went to her writing room and sat down at her desk. Pretty, absolutely lovely, bowled over. Her heart beat like a heavy bell. Pretty, lovely. She drew her checkbook towards her. But no, checks would be of no use, of course. She opened a drawer and took out five-pound notes, looked at them, put two back, and holding the three squeezed in her hand, she went back to her bedroom. Half an hour later, Philip was still in the library when Rosemary came in. I only wanted to tell you, said she, and she leaned against the door again and looked at him with her dazzled, exotic gaze. Miss Smith won't dine with us tonight. Philip put down the paper. Oh, what's happened? Previous engagement? Rosemary came over and sat down on his knee. She insisted on going, said she. So I gave the poor little thing a present of money. I couldn't keep her against her will, could I? She added softly. Rosemary had just done her hair, darkened her eyes a little, and put on pearls. She put up her hands and touched Philip's cheeks. Do you like me? she said, and her tone, sweet, husky, troubled him. I like you awfully, he said, and he held her tighter. Kiss me. There was a pause. Then Rosemary said dreamily, I saw a fascinating little box today. It cost 28 guineas. You have it? Philip jumped her on his knee. You may, you little wasteful one, said he. But that was not really what Rosemary wanted to say. Philip, she whispered, and she pressed his head against her bosom. Am I pretty? That was A Cup of Tea, written by Catherine Mansfield and read by Carol Peterson. Our final Mansfield short story today is simply called Bliss, and it's read by Lynn Stewart. Although Bertha Young was 30, she still had moments like this when she wanted to run instead of walk, to take dancing steps on and off the pavement, to bowl a hoop, to throw something up in the air and catch it again, or to stand still and laugh at nothing, at nothing simply. What can you do if you are 30 and turning the corner of your own street? You are overcome suddenly by a feeling of bliss, absolute bliss, as though you'd suddenly swallowed a bright piece of that late afternoon sun and it burned in your bosom, sending out little shower of sparks into every particle, into every finger and toe. Oh, is there no way you can express it without it being drunken disorderly? How idiotic civilization is. Why be given a body if you have to keep it shut up in a case like a rare, rare fiddle? No, that about the fiddle is not quite what I mean, she thought, running up the steps and feeling in her bag for the key. She'd forgotten it as usual and rattling the letterbox. 
It's not what I mean because... Thank you, Mary. She went into the hall. Is nurse back? Yes, ma'am. And has the fruit come? Yes, ma'am. Everything's come. Bring the fruit up to the dining room, will you? I'll arrange it before I go upstairs. It was dusky in the dining room and quite chilly. But all the same, Bertha threw off her coat. She could not bear the tight clasp of it another moment, and the cold air fell on her arms. But in her bosom, there was still that bright, glowing place, that shower of little sparks coming from it. It was almost unbearable. She hardly dared to breathe for fear of fanning it higher, and yet she breathed deeply, deeply. She hardly dared to look into the cold mirror, but she did look, and it gave her back a woman, radiant, with smiling, trembling lips, with big, dark eyes, and an air of listening, waiting for something divine to happen that she knew must happen infallibly. Mary brought in the fruit on a tray and with it a glass bowl and a blue dish, very lovely, with a strange sheen on it as though it had been dipped in milk. Shall I turn on the light, ma'am? Uh, no, thank you. I can see quite well. There were tangerines and apples stained with strawberry pink, some yellow pears, smooth as silk, some white grapes covered with a silver bloom, and a big cluster of purple ones. These last she had bought to tone in with the new dining room carpet. Yes, that did sound rather far-fetched and absurd, but it was really why she had bought them. She had thought in the shop, I must have some purple ones to bring the carpet up to the table, and it had seemed quite sense at the time. When she had finished with them and had made two pyramids of these bright round shapes, she stood away from the table to get the effect, and it really was most curious. For the dark table seemed to melt into the dusky light, and the glass dish and the blue bowl to float in the air. This, of course, in her present mood, was so incredibly beautiful. She began to laugh. Oh, no, no, I'm getting hysterical. And she seized her bag and coat and ran upstairs to the nursery. Nurse sat at a low table, giving little Bee her supper after her bath. The baby had on a white flannel gown and a blue woolen jacket, and her dark, fine hair was brushed up into a funny little peak. She looked up when she saw her mother and began to jump. Now, my lovey, eat it up like a good girl, said nurse, setting her lips in a way that Bertha knew, and that meant she had come into the nursery at another wrong moment. Has she been good, Nanny? She's been a little sweet all the afternoon, whispered Nanny. We went to the park and I sat down on a chair and took her out of the pram and a big dog came along and put its head on my knee and she clutched its ear and tugged it. Oh, you should have seen her. Bertha wanted to ask if it wasn't rather dangerous to let her clutch at a strange dog's ear, but she did not dare to. She stood watching them, her hands by her side, like the poor little girl in front of the rich little girl with the doll. The baby looked up at her again stared, and then smiled so charmingly that Bertha couldn't help crying, Oh, Nanny, do let me finish giving her her supper while you've put the bath things away. Well, ma'am, she oughtn't to be changed hands while she's eating, said Nanny, still whispering. It unsettles her. It's very likely to upset her. Oh, how absurd it was. Why have a baby if it has to be kept, not in a case like a rare, rare fiddle, but in another woman's arms? Oh, I must, said she. Very offended, Nanny handed her over. Now don't excite her after her supper. You know you do, ma'am, and I have such a time with her after. Oh, thank heaven. Nanny went out of the room with the bath towels. Now I've got you to myself, my little precious, said Bertha as the baby leaned against her. She ate delightfully, holding up her lips for spoon and then waving her hands. Sometimes she wouldn't let the spoon go. 
And sometimes, just as Bertha had filled it, she waved it away to the four winds. When the soup was finished, Bertha turned round to the fire. You're nice, you're very nice, said she, kissing her warm baby. I'm fond of you, I like you. And indeed, she loved little Bee so much. Her neck as she bent forward, her exquisite toes as they shone transparent in the firelight, that all her feeling of bliss came back again. And again, she didn't know how to express it and what to do with it. You're wanted on the telephone, said Nanny, coming back in triumph and seizing her little bee. Down she flew. It was Harry. Oh, is that you, Burr? Look here, I'll be late. I'll take a taxi and come along as quickly as I can, but get dinner put back ten minutes, will you? All right? Oh, yes, perfectly. Oh, Harry? Yes? What had she to say? She'd nothing to say. She'd only wanted to get in touch with him for a moment. She couldn't absurdly cry, Hasn't it been a divine day? What is it? rapped out the little voice. Oh, nothing. Entendu, said Bertha, and hung up the receiver, thinking how more than idiotic civilization was. They had people coming to dinner. The Norman Knights, a very sound couple. He was about to start a theatre, and she was awfully keen on interior decoration. A young man, Eddie Warren, who had just published a little book of poems in whom everybody was asking to dine, and a find of Bertha's called Pearl Fulton. What Miss Fulton did, Bertha didn't know. They had met at the club, and Bertha had fallen in love with her, as she always did fall in love with beautiful women who had something strange about them. The provoking thing was that though they had been about together and met a number of times and really talked, Bertha couldn't yet make her out. Up to a certain point, Miss Fulton was rarely wonderfully frank, but the certain point was there, and beyond that she would not go. Was there anything beyond it? Harry said no, voted her dullish and cold, like all blonde women, with a touch, perhaps, of anemia of the brain. But Bertha wouldn't agree with him. Not yet, at any rate. No, the way she has of sitting with her head a little on one side and smiling has something behind it, Harry. I must find out what that something is. Most likely it's a good stomach, answered Harry. He made a point of catching Bertha's heels with replies of that kind. Liver frozen, my dear girl, or pure flatulence, or kidney disease, and so on. For some strange reason, Bertha liked this and almost admired it in him very much. She went into the drawing room and lighted the fire. Then, picking up the cushions, one by one, that Mary had disposed so carefully, she threw them back onto the chairs and the couches. That made all the difference. The room came alive at once. As she was about to throw the last one, she surprised herself by suddenly hugging it to her, passionately, passionately. But it did not put out the fire in her bosom. Oh, on the contrary. The windows of the drawing room opened onto a balcony overlooking the garden. At the far end, against the wall, there was a tall, slender pear tree in fullest, richest bloom. It stood perfect, as though becalmed against the jade-green sky. Bertha couldn't help feeling, even from this distance, that it had not a single bud or a faded petal. Down below, in the garden beds, the red and yellow tulips, heavy with flowers, seemed to lean upon the dusk. A gray cat, dragging its belly, crept across the lawn, and a black one, its shadow, trailed after. The sight of them, so intent and so quick, gave Bertha a curious shiver. Oh, what creepy things cats are, she stammered, and she turned away from the window and began walking up and down. Oh, how strong the jonquil smelled in the warm room. Too strong? Oh, no. And yet, as though overcome, she flung down on a couch and pressed her hands to her eyes. 
I'm too happy, too happy, she murmured. And she seemed to see on her eyelids the lovely pear tree with its wide open blossoms as a symbol of her own life. Really, really, she had everything. She was young. Harry and she were as much in love as ever, and they got on together splendidly and were really good pals. She had an adorable baby. They didn't have to worry about money. They had this absolutely satisfactory house and garden. And friends, modern, thrilling friends, writers and painters and poets, or people keen on social questions, just the kind of friends they wanted. And then there were books, there was music, and she had found a wonderful little dressmaker, and they were going abroad in the summer, and their new cook made the most superb omelets. Oh, I'm absurd, absurd! She sat up, but she felt quite dizzy, quite drunk. It must have been the spring. Yes, it was the spring. Now she was so tired, she could not drag herself upstairs to dress. A white dress, a string of jade beads, green shoes and stockings. It wasn't intentional. She had thought of this scheme hours before she stood at the drawing room window. Her petals rustled softly into the hall, and she kissed Mrs. Norman Knight, who was taking off the most amusing orange coat with a procession of black monkeys around the hem and up the fronts. Why, why, why is the middle class so stodgy, so utterly without a sense of humor? My dear, it's only by a fluke that I am here at all, Norman being the protective fluke. For my darling monkeys so upset the train that it rose to a man and simply ate me with its eyes. Didn't laugh, wasn't amused. That I should have loved. No, just stared and bored me through and through. But the cream of it was, said Norman, pressing a large tortoiseshell-rimmed monocle into his eye. You don't mind me telling this face, do you? In their home and among their friends, they called each other face and mug. The cream of it was when she, being full-fed, turned to the woman beside her and said, Haven't you ever seen a monkey before? Oh, yes, Mrs. Norman Knight joined in the laughter. Wasn't that absolutely too creamy? And a funnier thing still was now that her coat was off, she did look like a very intelligent monkey who had even made that yellow silk dress out of scraped banana skins. And her amber earrings, they were like little dangling nuts. This is a sad, sad fall, said Mug, pausing in front of Little Bee's perambulator. When the perambulator comes into the hall... And he waved the rest of the quotation away. The bell rang. It was lean, pale Eddie Warren, as usual in a state of acute distress. It is the right house, isn't it? He pleaded. Oh, I think so. I hope so, said Bertha brightly. I have had such a dreadful experience with a taxi man. He was most sinister. I couldn't get him to stop. The more I knocked and called, the faster he went. And in the moonlight, this bizarre figure with the flattened head crouching over the little wheel. Oh. He shuddered, taking off an immense white silk scarf. Bertha noticed that his socks were white, too. Most charming. But how dreadful, she cried. Oh, yes, it really was, said Eddie, following her into the drawing room. I saw myself driving through eternity in a timeless taxi. He knew the Norman Knights. In fact, he was going to write a play for N.K. when the theatre scheme came off. Well, Warren, how's the play? said Norman Knight, dropping his monocle and giving his eye a moment in which to rise to the surface before it was screwed down again. And Mrs. Norman Knight, 
Oh, Mr. Warren, what happy socks! I am so glad you like them, said he, staring at his feet. They seem to have got so much whiter since the moon rose. And he turned his lean, sorrowful young face to Bertha. There is a moon, you know. She wanted to cry. I'm sure there is. Often, often. He really was a most attractive person. But so was Face, crouched before the fire in her banana skins, and so was Mug, smoking a cigarette and saying as he flicked the ash, Why doth the bridegroom tarry? Oh, there he is now. Bang went the front door open and shut. Harry shouted, Hello, you people, down in five minutes, and they heard him swarm up the stairs. Bertha couldn't help smiling. She knew how he loved doing things at high pressure. What, after all, did an extra five minutes matter? But he would pretend to himself that they mattered beyond measure. And then he would make a great point of coming into the drawing room extravagantly cool and collected. Harry had such a zest for life. Oh, how she appreciated it in him. And his passion for fighting, for seeking in everything that came up against him another test of his power and of his courage, that too she understood, even when it made him just occasionally, to other people who didn't know him well, a a little ridiculous perhaps, for there were moments when he rushed into battle where no battle was. She talked and laughed and positively forgot until he had come in, just as she had imagined, that Pearl Fulton had not turned up. I wonder if Miss Fulton has forgotten. I expect so, said Harry. Is she on the phone? Oh, there's a taxi now. And Bertha smiled with that little air of proprietorship that she always assumed while her woman finds were new and mysterious. (laughs) She lives in taxis. She'll run to fat if she does, said Harry coolly, ringing the bell for dinner. Frightful danger for blonde women. Oh, Harry, don't, warned Bertha, laughing up at him. Came another tiny moment while they waited laughing and talking, just a trifle too much at their ease, a trifle too unaware. And then Miss Fulton, all in silver, with a silver fillet binding her pale blonde hair, came in smiling, her head a little on one side. Am I late? Oh, no, not at all, said Bertha. Come along. And she took her arm and they moved into the dining room. What was there in the touch of that cool arm that could fan Fan, start blazing, blazing, the fire of bliss that Bertha did not know what to do with. Miss Fulton did not look at her, but then she seldom did look at people directly. Her heavy eyelids lay upon her eyes, and that strange half-smile came and went upon her lips, as though she lived by listening rather than seeing. But Bertha knew, suddenly, as if the longest, most intimate look had passed between them, as if they had said to each other, You too? that Pearl Fulton, stirring the beautiful red soup in the grey plate, was feeling just what she was feeling. And the others, Face and Mug, Eddie and Harry, their spoons rising and falling, dabbing their lips with their napkins, crumbling bread, fiddling with the forks and the glasses, and talking. I met her at the Alpha Show, the weirdest little person. She'd not only cut off her hair, but she seemed to have taken a dreadfully good snip off her legs and her arms and her neck and her poor little nose as well. Isn't she very lié with Michael Oat, the man who wrote Love and False Teeth? He wants to write a play for me. One act. One man. Decides to commit suicide. Gives all the reasons why he should and why he shouldn't. And just as he's made up his mind either to do it or not to do it? Curtain. Not half a bad idea. Well, what's he going to call it? Stomach trouble? I think I've come across the same idea in a little French review quite unknown in England. No, they didn't share it. They were dears, dears, 
and she loved having them there at her table and giving them delicious food and wine. In fact, she longed to tell them how delightful they were and what a decorative group they made, how they seemed to set one another off and how they reminded her of a play by Chekhov. Harry was enjoying his dinner. It was part of his, well, not his nature exactly, and certainly not his pose, his uh, something or other, to talk about food and to glory and his shameless passion for the white flesh of the lobster and the green of pistachio ices, green and cold like the eyelids of Egyptian dances. When he looked up at her and said, Bertha, this is a very admirable souffle. She could almost have wept with childlike pleasure. Oh, why did she feel so tender toward the whole world tonight? Everything was good, was right. All that happened seemed to fill again her brimming cup of bliss. And still, in the back of her mind, there was the pear tree. It would be silver now, in the light of poor dear Eddie's moon, silver as Miss Fulton, who sat there turning a tangerine in her slender fingers that were so pale a light seemed to come from them. What she simply couldn't make out, what was miraculous, was how she should have guessed Miss Fulton's mood so exactly and so instantly. For she never doubted for a moment that she was right, and yet what had she to go on? Less than nothing. Well, I believe this does happen very, very rarely between women. Never between men, thought Bertha. But while I am making the coffee in the drawing room, perhaps she will give a sign. What she meant by that, she did not know. And what would happen after that, she could not imagine. While she thought like this, she saw herself talking and laughing. She had to talk because of her desire to laugh. I must laugh or die. But when she noticed Face's funny little habit of tucking something down the front of her bodice, as if she kept a tiny secret hoard of nuts there too, Bertha had to dig her nails into her hands so as not to laugh too much. It was over at last. And come and see my new coffee machine, said Bertha. We only have a new coffee machine once a fortnight, said Harry. Face took her arm this time. Miss Fulton bent her head and followed after. The fire had died down in the drawing room to a red, flickering nest of baby phoenixes, said Face. Don't turn up the light for a moment. It is so lovely. And down she crouched by the fire again. She was always cold. Without her little red flannel jacket, of course, thought Bertha. At that moment, Miss Fulton gave the sign. Have you a garden? said the cool, sleepy voice. This was so exquisite on her part that all Bertha could do was to obey. She crossed the room, pulled the curtains apart, and opened those long windows. There, she breathed, and the two women stood side by side, looking at the slender flowering tree. Although it was so still, it seemed like the flame of a candle to stretch up, to point, to quiver in the bright air, to grow taller and taller as they gazed, almost to touch the rim of the round silver moon. How long did they stand there? Both, as it were, caught in that circle of unearthly light, understanding each other perfectly, creatures of another world, and wondering what they were to do in this one with all this blissful treasure that burned in their bosoms and dropped in silver flowers from their hair and hands. Forever? For a moment? And did Miss Fulton murmur, Yes, just that. Or did Bertha dream it? Then the light was snapped on and Face made the coffee and Harry said, My dear Mrs. Knight, don't ask me about my baby. I never see her. I shan't feel the slightest interest in her until she has a lover. And Mug took his eye out of the conservatory for a moment and then put it under glass again and 
Eddie Warren drank his coffee and set down the cup with a face of anguish as though he had drunk and seen the spider. What I want to do is give the young men a show. I believe London is simply teeming with first chop unwritten plays. What I want to say to him is, here's the theater, fire ahead. You know, my dear, I am going to decorate a room for the Jacob Nathans. Oh, I am so tempted to do a fried fish scheme with the backs of the chairs shaped like frying pans and lovely chipped potatoes embroidered all over the curtains. The trouble with our young writing men is that they are still true romantic. You can't put out to sea without being seasick and wanting a basin. Well, why won't they have the courage of those basins? A dreadful poem about a girl who was violated by a beggar without a nose in a little wood. Miss Fulton sank into the lowest, deepest chair, and Harry handed round the cigarettes. From the way he stood in front of her, shaking the silver box and saying abruptly, Egyptian? Turkish? Virginian? They're all mixed up. Bertha realized that she not only bored him, he really disliked her. And she decided from the way Miss Fulton said, No, thank you. I won't smoke. That she felt it, too, and was hurt. Oh, Harry, don't dislike her. You are quite wrong about her. She's wonderful, wonderful. And besides, how could you feel so differently about someone who means so much to me? I shall try to tell you when we are in bed tonight what has been happening, what she and I have shared. At those last words, something strange and almost terrifying darted into Bertha's mind. And this something blind and smiling whispered to her, Soon these people will go. The house will be quiet, quiet. The lights will be out, and you and he will be alone together in the dark room, the warm bed. She jumped up from her chair and ran over to the piano. What a pity someone does not play, she cried. What a pity that someone does not play. For the first time in her life, Bertha Young desired her husband. Oh, she'd loved him. She'd been in love with him, of course, in every other way, but just not in that way. And, equally, of course, she'd understood that he was different. They'd discussed it so often. It had worried her dreadfully at first to find out that she was so cold, but after a time it had not seemed to matter. They were so frank with each other. Such good pals. That was the best of being modern. But now, ardently, ardently, the word ached in her ardent body. Was this what that feeling of bliss had been leading up to? But then, then... My dear, said Mrs. Norman Knight, you know our shame. We are the victims of time and train. We live in Hampstead. It's been so nice. I'll come with you into the hall, said Bertha. I loved having you, but you must not miss the last train. That's so awful, isn't it? Have a whiskey night before you go, called Harry. Uh, no thanks, old chap. Bertha squeezed his hand for that as she shook it. Good night, goodbye, she cried from the top step feeling that this self of hers was taking leave of them forever. When she got back into the drawing room, the others were on the move. Then you can come part of the way in my taxi. I shall be so thankful not to have to face another drive alone after my dreadful experience. You can get a taxi at the rank just at the end of the street. You won't have to walk more than a few yards. That's a comfort. I'll go and put on my coat. Miss Fulton moved towards the hall, and Bertha was following when Harry almost pushed past. Let me help you. Bertha knew that he was repenting his rudeness, and she let him go by. What a boy he was in some ways. So impulsive. So simple. And Eddie and she were left by the fire.
I wonder if you have seen Bilk's new poem called Table d'Hote, said Eddie softly. It's so wonderful. In the last anthology, have you got a copy? I'd so like to show it to you. It begins with an incredibly beautiful line. Why must it always be tomato soup? Ah, yes, said Bertha. And she moved noiselessly to a table opposite the drawing room door, and Eddie glided noiselessly after her. She picked up the little book and gave it to him. They had not made a sound. While he looked it up, she turned her head towards the hall, and she saw Harry with Miss Fulton's coat in his arms and Miss Fulton with her back turned to him and her head bent. He tossed the coat away, put his hands on her shoulders, and turned her violently to him. His lips said, I adore you. And Miss Fulton laid her moonbeam fingers on his cheeks and smiled her sleepy smile. Harry's nostrils quivered. His lips curled back in a hideous grin while he whispered, Tomorrow. And with her eyelids, Miss Fulton said, Yes. Oh, here it is, said Eddie. Why must it always be tomato soup? It's so deeply true, don't you feel? Tomato soup is so dreadfully eternal. If you prefer, said Harry's voice very loud from the hall, I can phone you a cab to come to the door. Oh, no, it's not necessary, said Miss Fulton. And she came up to Bertha and gave her the slender fingers to hold. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Goodbye, said Bertha. Miss Fulton held her hand a moment longer. Your lovely pear tree, she murmured. And then she was gone, with Eddie following, like the black cat following the gray cat. I'll shut up shop, said Harry, extravagantly cool and collected. Your lovely pear tree. Pear tree, pear tree. Bertha simply ran over to the long windows. Oh, what is going to happen now, she cried. But the pear tree was as lovely as ever and as full of flower and as still. That was Bliss, a short story written by Catherine Mansfield and read by Lynn Stewart. We hope you've enjoyed the Apiango Readers Theatre show today, for From Mansfield, that highlights some of the best short stories ever written in English by one of our favourite writers, Catherine Mansfield. She was only 34 when she died in 1923, and though her short stories were written about her own life and times that ended tragically nearly a hundred years ago, there's something that eternally shimmers in her simple words. These four classic stories, as with all of Mansfield's writing, seem as though they could have been written only yesterday by somebody who knew our 21st century world all too well. Some might even say she knew us better a century ago than we know ourselves today. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Kathy Chapesky, Carol Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and the producer of the Opiongo line, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you another great summer afternoon on those warm, sunny beaches of the upper Madawaska Valley, or wherever you find yourself. Good day, and God bless. <laughs>